This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtied Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're talking about leading innovation in the lab. We'll hear advice firsthand from one of Mayo Clinic's laboratory leaders and hear stories that helped shape their journey in laboratory medicine. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Bill Maurice, the chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Maurice. Oh, it's my pleasure. So to, to kick off this podcast, I was curious, when did you first become interested in leadership? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question um, on a lot of different levels. I, I think, number one, just as a transplant, assimilated Minnesotan, you, you feel a little bit reticent to, de- to be declarative of interest in leadership because it <laughs> seems a bit uh, grandiose mm-hmm. or self-serving, but it's really not. Uh, just, I'm a strong believer in the servant leadership, a model of Mayo Clinic and that culture. Um, and uh, the other reason it's hard is because it wasn't like I had – an, uh, a seminal moment, an epiphany where I woke up and said, I'm going to be a leader someday. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, I really would say that I only started to become interested in leadership after I went on staff. During my training, I, I, wasn't, uh, I didn't participate in trying to lead resident organizations. I did serve as, as a chief resident but, and help with that, but that was more by default. And so it really it was after I was on staff um, and I realized that there were challenges that our group had as I joined the faculty in hematopathology and anatomic pathology. And I saw some challenges that our group had that there's, we needed to come together and, and to be consistent with the Mayo Clinic Francis, Franciscan value of teamwork. Um, and so trying to pull people together. And so that's really when it started. Um, and it was so it was very much motivated by an ability to kind of help people solve problems that they couldn't solve for themselves. So when you made that transition into a leadership position, I'm curious, uh, what surprised you most once you uh, took on that role? Oh, well, there's, um, and and so I've been, I've had the, excuse me, the opportunity to be a leader at multiple levels here at Mayo Clinic. Mm -hmm. So the, and each level of leadership, you kind of learn something new about leadership and in general and yourself in particular so my first leadership role which i probably didn't even realize was a leadership role was as a lab director and that that when i stepped into that role uh, i'm a i think of myself as an affable and personable person um, but recognize at that point that to really it's being fair uh, as a leader and being uh, viewed as someone that is uh is is inclusive and doesn't have favorites made me realize I had to modulate how I interacted with people. Um, for instance, I let some people use my first name when I was just working as a resident in the lab and realized that that then made some people have a perception of power. Some had to call me by a, my title of Dr. Maurice and some could call me by my first name, Bill. So that was the first level. Then I became the division chair. Um, so leading the group at that time about 18 hematopathologists. And at that level, it became important for me to understand Again, uh, a lot about people and how people think and how they problem solve and how they perceive. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, any individual's ability to get on board in a small to medium-sized group really is going to be shaped by how they view problems and how they process inf- information. So you had to really be able to step out of your own perspective of how to solve a problem and understand how others are approaching that problem as well. And probably the, the and, and now the position I'm in, I'm both the chair of laboratory medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic Rochester 
and for the health system, and also the president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories, our reference lab business. So it's it's a very high visibility position. And at that level, really the thing that became very apparent to me over time was that it, it is a position that many people um, will watch and observe how you behave, and, that will, and they'll draw conclusions about who you are as a leader or who we are as an institution, what we are as a department. Because, you know, in a department of 4,000 people, most, very few people are going to actually interact with me on a daily basis, which might be for their benefit. <laughs> but um, <laughs> overall, uh, defending. But uh, so just the fact that there's a very symbolic nature of the position, so you have to be very self-aware um, and, and, and thoughtful in terms of the not only the things that you say, but the way you present yourself. And that's not just for the department, but also for the institution. You, you come to the realization that if you're a leader in an organization and you're leading a large group, however you interact with others um, is really going to be the perception of your entire group. And so it, you feel almost like I'm an emissary for laboratory medicine pathology at Mayo Clinic. So I think those are, the, those are for me, taking those things home. I think that's sort of... Uh, and then the neat thing about that, of course, is that it challenges you to grow as an individual to, to kind of accommodate those different challenges. I'm hearing a lot of that in, in, your, in your discussion today, in your answers today, the self-reflection, the self-learning. And so I'm curious then for the learners that are listening to this podcast, uh, so residents, fellows in laboratory medicine uh, who are interested in leadership, what advice do you have for them? So what should they be kind of focusing on during their training and then early career? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for learners, uh, the first thing I would say is to take every opportunity to participate in activities that require you to think about the perspective of others, right? Because leadership ultimately is about, is about not about you as much as it is the people that you lead. So you really have to understand people and how they think and how they process information. So that's one. The other is that there is a real science to it. The other thing I learned you know, as a pathologist and someone that didn't have aspirations to be a leader per se, um, that there's a real science to leadership. There's a, there's a real science to management. And so there's a lot of good literature out there. And to start to read those and, and to stimulate thought, and, and not even in, in that perspective, not even in, in medicine, but to read about leaders in a variety of, of, uh, of walks of life and because uh, you can start to learn a lot. It's interesting that um, Dr. Noseworthy, so I, in my position, I report directly to the CEO of Vail Clinic. And so I report directly to Dr. Noseworthy. And interesting story, I actually worked, I did a year of internal medicine. I worked with Dr. Noseworthy on the neurology service. And it was at a time when a bunch of the residents had quit. So it was like two residents and him covering a huge service. And so we worked really, it was very intense. And uh, so I think because of that, he always had sort of a personal, um, he kind of took me under his wing, you know, if you will. And so when he retired from Mayo Clinic, he's, we spent an hour together talking. And I was amazed about how um, perceptive he was. And we, we started talking, we were actually talking about the play Hamilton. And I started off with him mentioning how I was a big history buff. And it turns out he was a history major. And so we had a really rich conversation around that. But he made the observation, and because I, I mentioned a few things, he's like, I can tell you have been reading about leaders for years and assimilating what they what they did and what made them successful and not successful, and and it, he was absolutely right. And and, and I, I think when I started, it was more just because I was curious about leadership, not because I was thinking about it for myself. But that's the other, so the other thing is to read a lot. I, I mean, because for me, and it, it really helped kind of provide context. 
You know, thinking about now, there's a number of bedside clinicians uh, like Dr. Noseworthy who are listening to this podcast. And in your position of really bringing the lab to serve the patient, that really requires a lot of collaboration with our clinical colleagues. And what do you think would be your message to those listening uh, clinicians out there for what do you wish they knew about the laboratory? that would really strengthen the relationship at their center? Sure, uh, that's a, a really thought-provoking question, honestly. Um, one of the things that I have learned um, about myself and as I think about the people, I, I did a personality assessment early on, and not surprisingly, um, I'm very much an extrovert. <laughs> and then if you look at most people in pathology, they actually tend, it tends to be a field that draws introverted people. Um, and that's not, it just does, and that's, that's cool. Um, but I think because of that, it is also a field that I, I, me being an extrovert made me naturally reach out to my colleagues and try and understand what they were trying, the, the, the care issues they were trying to deal with. Um, you all, as you know, I also worked in the Federal Medical Center for, and so taking care of patients for four years after I switched back to pathology and done internal medicine. So I had some inkling of what the care environment was about and kind of challenges that providers were facing. But I think that it's really, that's probably not a skill set that comes naturally to a lot of people in pathology. And also, to be complete, in laboratory medicine, to be completely honest, I think we are also fighting a societal battle where people have become more and more comfortable connecting through social media as opposed to directly. So I would say for, for the providers that are out there to really not be afraid to engage their laboratory medicine, not to draw conclusions and not to feel like they're on their own if they're trying to make sense of a constellation of laboratory findings but to really reach out and to get to know the laboratorians and the pathologists that are help providing the information for the patients. But many of them would really appreciate the call. They might be reticent to, to, to reach out just because of the nature of the people in the, in the, and we're all so busy. But that's the main thing. We're all part of the same team. And I think that we can really help enrich each other's experience and most importantly, enrich the patient experience if we really discuss and collaborate. Now, wise words. Transitioning to thinking about practicing pathologists, I know here at Mayo Clinic, you're overseeing a lot of teams that are working on projects and, and bringing them to uh, fruition. How do you approach setting a team up for success? Oh, it's another, it's something A, I'm really passionate about. And so I guess because of that, I think it's a good question. Um, the There's a lot of different thoughts around teamwork. And so one of the challenges that I faced when I stepped into this role is that at Mayo Clinic, our Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology not only serves our patients here on our campus, but also patients that will never reach our campus through the reference lab. And the reference lab is a for-profit activity. All the profits, of course, go back to Mayo Clinic and, and we don't retain any of them, but it has created a dy dynamic in the past where there's real tension um, and even antipathy between the business side of, at that time, Mayo Medical Labs and the department. And to me, that was so um, incongruent with who, what we are as an organization and, our, and again, our Franciscan values. And so uh, it I was really important to me that we pulled together as a team, a team that was multidisciplinary that allowed the business and the practice to see themselves as a singular entity, not DLMP and Mayo Medical Laboratories. That's why actually Mayo Clinic Labs is really, I was so pleased that we were able to get that, that name rebranding done. But so that requires, and there's a group called the Table Group, which I've worked with for a long time. It's led by a guy named Pat Lencioni, who ironically is good friends with Alan Mulally, 
who was the CEO of Ford, when Ford went through the when there was the, the Great Recession, and Ford was the only company that did not take government bail, the only large automaker didn't take government bailout, and all the the, the basic premise for for the Table Group, and it's shown if, if people are interested, this book American Icon, which is about Alan Mulally's tenure um, is at Ford, or at least during that period, is is real transparency. So you got to build trust. It, you have to build trust because what you want is a team that's diverse. Uh, a team that really feels safe for people to offer those opinions, to challenge each other, to challenge each other's assumptions. Um, and then the disagree and commit is the words that's actually, those words are actually, uh, I guess, above every uh, boardroom at, at uh, Intel, mm-hmm. right? So you, what you want is a team that feels comfortable hashing things out, but at the end they have to commit to a course of direction that takes into account everyone's perspectives. And so team building, and it really, so it really starts with transparency, um, it starts with trust, it tries, and with vulnerability. And all those things are, all the tone is set by the leader, right? So if a leader creates, uh, has a team around them, and every leader will, right? It's, it will vary in size. And they are, themselves do not display the characteristics of vulnerability and trust and delegation. It will never happen. And, that, and you will ultimately make bad decisions as an organization, even if you have really smart people. So I think that's really team building, and that's, again, it's an investment. And the hardest part of that, of course, as leaders, you have to be out in front. So you have to be the most open. You have to be the most vulnerable. You have to be all those things if you really want people to follow you. So I think building and investing in the relationships in the team um, and and being honest, because some people aren't comfortable participating in that, and then if they're not, then they doesn't mean they're bad people, because it does require a lot of openness. Um, it just means that they maybe aren't well suited for a dynamic leadership team. Join us for the current status of clinical laboratory testing of plasma cell neoplasms, a case-based approach. A Friday symposium preceding the 61st American Society of Hematology annual meeting on December 6, 2019 at the Hilton Orlando. Visit mayocliniclabs.com forward slash 2019 Mayo Simp for more information. I see that uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about uh, that uh, opposing dynamic between people that are getting the work done uh, for the main part of the business and then the people that are the innovators that are bringing on the, the new and there's a competition for resources and there's that natural pull. So. Uh, I guess in follow-up, do you see yourself uh, trying to model that? Uh, how do you have a respectful disagreement? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, no. I think that that's the the beauty of things is that the the dynamic. I mean, there will be tension between a business that's trying to serve a reference laboratory market and a department that's also trying to serve an academic practice. Th- that tension will naturally exist. Um, if you try and muffle it all happens is everyone gets frustrated. If you try and bring it out, then you can make decisions. Sometimes you'll make decisions that are more in line with the practice than what the business will want because we're all about the needs of the patient come first and that's where we have to, that's where our bread is buttered, right? We have to be true to ourselves. But at the same time, I mean, there's sometimes, sometimes the tensions we're feeling through the reference lab market are telling these things about ourselves that we have to look in the mirror and say, honestly, we probably need to do that better, right? Mm. The outside world is telling us something about ourselves and the way that we're practicing, which is probably anomalous. Or could we could improve on? So I, that, that's it. And I think innovation is a whole nother. Um, one of the things early on with that group was that 
as an academic department, the way the Mayo Clinic works, our resourcing was focused very much on the practice. And one of the things that as I took over um, into my role, of course, a lot of my career success was predicated on, I took observations from my PhD work and applied them in the clinical lab. And during the interview process, it became pretty clear to me that institutional leadership viewed our department as not innovative at all. We were, we were seen as very, as a, as a large kind of department within Mayo Clinic that had all the positives and negatives of that, and the negatives being kind of bureaucratic and process-oriented and not innovative. And so one of the early disagreements on my team was that I went and, and read Clayton Christensen and the Innovator's Dilemma, as it turns out Dr. Faruja has as well, and there's a lot in there about the fact that successful businesses are often sowing the seeds for their failure during their success because they become so focused on current needs that they don't start to invest in future needs. And I saw that happening to our own department in, in very important areas. And so, but there was disagreement on our team whether we should really go forward and ask our board to allow us to separately invest in innovation. Um, but we, we arrived at that decision and that's where we've been going, so. Fascinating. So now this next question is something that is just a personal curiosity for, for me. Uh, You've done a lot in your career. You've led uh, the division of hematopathology, very successful uh, researcher. Uh, now you're leading the department, uh, Mayo Clinic Labs. At this point in your career, what's the real challenge for you? Oh, <laughs> lots of them. Um, I've thought about this question a lot because I think one of the things that's a real challenge for me, there's a few of them. Number one is that because of the demands of this position, I don't practice very much, if really at all. And so staying connected to the needs of the department, I still sometimes I'll look at myself and say, you know, what would the resident Bill Maurice think about when I'm, the words coming out of my mouth? And what would the new staff member Bill Maurice think about the words coming out of my mouth? And, and those, you know, and, and kind of challenge myself to, to maintain the perspective of, of, a, of a pathologist and a, and a, uh, and a, and a physician and a provider working in the organization. That's tough. Um, and the other, really honestly, is to, um, is to, uh, to look ahead because I'm already halfway. We, at Mayo, we have rotating leadership, and I've been in four, four and a half years, and typically it's eight to 10 years. So you start to think about every step along the way has sort of been a progression to something different. And so now I'll stand on a vista when I have the opportunity to look and I have to have a lot of different choices, but it'll be, do I, do I rotate back into being into the practice? Do I do use the experiences that I've garnered to do something different to help Mayo Clinic? I think Mayo Clinic will probably decide some of that for me. Um, so, but that's, that's one. And then last but not least is that, you know, this is the time now that I've been in the role for four years to really look at the things that and when I talk about that perspective, there are, I think when we're on staff um, and we're in the org any big organization, you see challenges and you're like, man, I wish leadership would just take that on. You know, I know it's tough. And that's where we're, that's, that's sort of the mantle I'm trying to pick up here the last four years. There's some things that as a large, every academic pathology department, if you think about it, grew up serving basically diagnostic services providing to the, the area of the practice that they serve. So you had hematopathology serving hematology. You have clinical microbiology serving infectious disease. Transfusion medicine is a little different, but still serving the surgical practice and the, and the blood product needs of our patients. That doesn't really lend itself to thinking about yourself as a singular organization, team-based organization, right? You're gonna evolve a way of thinking which is quite insular. And that is really challenged now when we have technologies that come in, and perfect examples like next-generation sequencing. 
Also, in the next, uh, that's a piece of technology that makes a division of laboratory genetics and genomics and the molecular hematopathology. It completely breaks down the barriers, right? It blurs the boundaries between those and requires a commonality of resources like bioinformatics. We haven't really adapted to that yet. So the next challenge for me is to really, again, leadership is really taking people someplace they might not get on their own. So how do I help in the next four years to build, continue to build off of our um, values of teamwork and and uh, and respect and compassion and integrity to have a division or a department, excuse me, that looks worries less about the boundaries between individual divisions and more about how we can take those down to better serve our patient needs. I'd like to take a second and uh, dive into and explore a little bit of uh, part of your answer there. Uh, as you know, my heart beats for education. And uh, in the when you started to answer, you were talking about uh, having the different lenses and thinking about, you know, what would Dr. Maurice, the resident, think of this and thinking about different people. And in the critical reflection literature, that's what they talk about is uh, taking uh, these different perspectives and and thinking about how that affected decisions and where those power differentials are and leading ideas and things like that. I'm curious about you. Do you have a, a practice of uh, reflection or do you journal or uh, what's your practice for this self-reflection discovery? You've, you've certainly made a deliberate practice of it in your life. I'm kind of curious about how how you've done that. Yeah, it's... it's uh Again, I'm also hyperconnected. I've tried journaling and I've done it for periods of time. It's never been a sustainable practice for me. Um, I spend a lot of time, for those that know me, on my bike. And actually, I find that that's a time I, I tend to ride mostly by myself. And that, that that's a time where I'm focused on the physical activity and yet I know I'm processing lots of things. And so that's a time I actually tend to, and, I, and then at night and I read at night so as well. Um, and lately, I had the opportunity last year to um, go on the, there's the, the uh, Franciscan order here in, in Rochester uh, endowed um, a pilgrimage every year for Mayo Clinic faculty as well as some of the local school teachers because they also started the school, Catholic school system here in Rochester. So I had the opportunity to take that pilgrimage with my wife last year. And actually, since then, I've been doing daily readings of St. Francis in a breviary. Um, as a very selfless, I mean, when you talk about the selfless leader kind of person. So I do things like that as well and, and try and put myself in that context and see what are those, what, what things are that I'm reading there are relevant for me and my experiences today. So I, I, I know from your answers and I know from, from you personally, I know you're, you're a huge reader. I tried looking you up on Goodreads before we came in today. Couldn't find you. You've mentioned a couple of books uh, here. I just wonder if you could kind of close us out with, do you have any book recommendations for our listeners who are interested in developing their leadership skills? Yeah, I'd, say, I'd recommend a few. I think American Icon is a great one. It's, if, it's, I like the auto industry as well. I like lots of things. I think definitely, first of all, I would say don't read medicine textbooks, right? I would look outside of, and, and medical literature, and you, look, at, look around for me and, and find something that's a leadership experience that resonates with you. So for me, the Alan Mulally book about the automotive industry, it was actually given to us when he was put on our board of trustees, and I got a chance to meet him very briefly. Um, and then I, I also like to read a lot of history. So there's uh, there's a, a book, I wish, uh, Joseph J. Ellis, 
has a book on George Washington, which is actually, if you grew up uh, if, in the United States and took, when I did in the it's early 70s, um, you know, George Washington seemed about as wooden a character, no pun intended for his teeth, as you could imagine. Yet to, when you think about what he had to do and who he had to be to pull off what we pulled off as as the colonies going to a country and talk about a diff- strong personalities and diversities of opinion. So that's another one I would recommend. It's a really good book. Um, and then I've read a lot of Winston Churchill and another interesting character, if you like in the military, that sort of, a, and it's really not about the military, but Dwight Eisenhower is another person that's very interesting. He has one of his own memoirs from World War II. You can read those, and he has very interesting insights. One of the things I loved about that, he has a quote in there about he would drive, you know, when he was driving through the front uh, during the European invasion, uh, he would have his driver stop, and he would get out and talk to the troops. And finally, his personal assistant said, why do you do that? There's just no way you're going to ever talk to enough people It's going to make a difference. And he said, you know, I want to make sure that all these um, soldiers feel like they can talk to their commander. And if their commander sees me getting out and talking to them, they know that's not what I expect of them. So it's really interesting. There's stuff like that. Also, his, he's another one. You talk about leadership. He was actually assigned by George Marshall to, um, to come over and say, what would it take to be to, for the Allied forces to successfully invade Europe? And he was the one that said, you need a supreme commander that's going to coordinate everything. And he was like 300th on the list of people that we chosen. He was a very controversial choice to lead that. So he, and he didn't even put him, recommend himself for that position. If you read that and then read also, there's a, a number of great texts about him not written by him. And then you see the other side. So the other side is you see a guy that never slept, that smoked like about four, you know, six packs of cigarettes a day. You know, he never is, he never is open about the stressors. And I think, cause the other thing that leadership is draining. I mean, it demands things of you and you really have to make sure you invest in your, you recognize that and you surround yourself with people that will support you and that you continue to invest in yourself and your own personage as well. Now, it's nice to see you at, at the gym, actually, most mornings. <laughs> I see you uh, lifting, uh, usually with one of your kids. Yep. And- <laughs> Yeah, I'm a little bit hyperkinetic, so I try to take advantage of it. But it's true. I mean, that's and that's part of why I still ride my bike to work and run to work too. Because like you know, I'm not going to give that up. Mm-hmm. It's been a few times I've had to rush in for meetings, and I've been a little bit on the sweaty side. But uh, so far, it hasn't got me in trouble. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Maurice. Thank you for the opportunity. We've been rounding with Dr. Maurice about leading innovation in the lab. Thank you for taking the time to discuss this topic with us. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations.